Good morning, friends, and uh, let's gather together, bowing our heads and hearts from our homes as we prepare to come to God's Word here together. O oh, gracious God, we come before you today, and we have been uh, just very grateful and thankful for the chance we've had to uh, worship you in song already. And now, from our homes, we invite you to speak to our hearts. Holy Spirit, take the words of my mouth and lead the meditations of each of our hearts. May they be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. In 1912, the greatest ship ever built was one that I am certain you know by name. It was the Titanic. Right? The Titanic. It was the, the biggest, strongest, most glamorous ship the world had ever seen. The claims about the Titanic were that it was um, almost practically unsinkable. Now, I, I trust you know enough of the story to know how audacious and misguided those claims were. But a lesser known fact, perhaps, a lesser-known side to the whole story of the Titanic was a second ship that was traveling across the Atlantic around that same time. It was called the SS California. In fact, this was the closest ship to the Titanic when it went down. It's estimated that the, the California was about 19 miles away from the Titanic, which, which is clear enough to see by eyesight from one bridge deck to the other. And the night of the Titanic going down in April of 1912, the captain of the California and his crew were alleged to have gone off to bed and to sleep. When the Titanic hit the iceberg and then the Mayday sounds rang out across radios all around, they fell on, well, not deaf ears, no ears on the California because apparently they were all snoozing. When, when eight different rockets were fired up from the bridge of the Titanic, Mayday rockets, flares... It was apparently thought that they were just having a party on the Titanic and they were fireworks going off. And when the lights finally went out, it was thought that, well, they finally went off to bed. It was actually another ship that was 58 miles away, almost three times as far away as the California, that heard the Mayday call that came as fast as it could through those iceberg-filled waters and was able to sh save a few hundred of the thousands that were on the Titanic that day. Did the California, at least in part, do you think, believe the, the pride-filled, self-indulged, over-the-top confidence of the Titanic? Did it believe some of its own game, some of its own smack? And did, did, the, did the captain of the California and the crew of the California go to bed that night thinking, well, we don't need to keep an eye out for the virtually unsinkable Titanic. I mean, it can do its own. Its own. What could have happened if that ship three times closer had been there to step in. 
This story is a powerful warning of the danger of pride and the catastrophe that can come about when pride sets in. And this is exactly where our text of God's Word speaks to today. As we continue our series in the book of Romans, we come to a text that is really a warning against pride. It's warning to us is that as pride rises up, the church breaks down. As pride rises up, the church breaks down. And I want to invite you to turn with me to the book of Romans chapter 12. We're going to be in verses 3 to 8. And we saw last week as we restarted our study and began in the first couple of verses of chapter 12, That in view of God's amazing grace and incredible mercy that he's extended to us, God leads us towards transformed lives. God calls us to be a transformed people. And today our passage is continuing that thinking of not conformed, but transformed. And it's pointing out that one of the greatest threats to transformation in your life, one of the greatest threats to transformation in my life, in our church's life, is pride. One of the greatest threats to us growing individually and collectively to be the transformed people that God wants us to be is pride. When pride rises up, the church breaks down. When pride takes over, it has life-altering, life-threatening consequences. But the gospel produces the most beautiful transformation of extraordinary humility. When pride rises up, the church breaks down, but the gospel produces the most beautiful transformation of extraordinary humility. That's what we're going to see come out of God's word today. Let's dive in beginning in verse 3. Romans chapter 12, verse 3 says this, For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, Do not think of yourselves more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith God has given you. The gospel, here's the first point, if you're taking notes, if you're following along for a small group for this week, the gospel transforms the way I think of myself. Paul writes here, by the grace given to me, that is to say, God has been at work in Paul's life and he's writing this, not saying, oh, I've arrived and I've got this all figured out, but rather I've received grace and it's leading me to now say this to you. I need to pass this along to you, Roman church. I need to pass this along to you, Bethel Baptist Church in Strathroy, Ontario. Do not think of yourselves more highly than you ought. Rather, Think of yourselves with sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith God has given you. See, the gospel transforms the way I think about myself. The gospel transforms the way you think about yourself. The good news of Jesus produces humility. Do not think of yourselves more highly than you ought. The gospel draws our attention away from ourselves and directs our gaze upon Jesus Christ. This is very counterintuitive to us, though. This is 
very countercultural for us. See, in our day, perhaps the, the greatest message of our day right now, the, the sounded from the rooftops through the megaphone messages, is that we need to elevate self. We need to elevate self in everything. There is this assumption that the, the problems of our day is, uh, is all a result, are all a result of the devaluing of self. The oppression in our world today is the result of not being able to be your full self. The solution is to help people elevate themselves, to increase your self-esteem. You need to find your voice and be able to speak for yourself. You need to be able to discover the real you and then be lifted up so you can be you. And and there is a degree of truth and importance to this. There are some very real and very heinous problems that have happened because of putting people down. I don't know, think of racism, think of sexism, think of any form of abuse going on. All of these have undergirding them this mentality that looking down on someone who is worth less. And we as Christians would be the first, should be the first, to stand up and say, no, that is wrong. Every person is made in the image of God. Every person is given value because they are image bearers of God. There is no one, regardless of where they're from, what they do, what they look like, what their skin color is, not, there's nothing that says this person is worth less than this person. The, the Bible simply does not say that in any way. It fights back against that. And so we as Christians at some level, we want to say, yes, absolutely. We do need to recognize the value of each and every individual. And yet we have this tendency to swing and take one good thing and go so far to the extreme that it just messes it all up. I mean, if I were to give you a I recognize a rather frivolous example, but I think it drives home the point. I, I love cheesecake. I, I love cheesecake. My wife, Natalie, is an amazing cook, chef, baker of cheesecake. She makes the most incredible cheesecake. And cheesecake is fabulous. If you have a nice size, you get to enjoy it. And it is just an absolute delight. But if you go and you try to eat the whole cheesecake in one sitting, well, it's going to be an absolute disaster. You're going to be sick as anything, reeling over in pain, are you not? But that's exactly what we do. We take something that is good if it's taken in proportion and in right view, and we expand it to the extreme. But then we don't just do that. See, what we do is we are, we are like the toddler who is at the table, who has their piece of cheesecake, eats it, and then is like, I want more, and begins to demand. And, and the parent is like, no, you can't have more. You've already had enough. I want more. And then the toddler starts freaking out and demanding. Well, if you have more, you try to reason with the toddler. If you have more, you're going to get sick. I won't get sick. I know what I need. And starts having this crazy freak out temper tantrum, convinced they know what they need more than their parents. Parents, you ever been there? Ever been there with your kids? But parents know you can't do that. See, that's exactly how we are. We take this good thing, and then when not only do we push it to the extreme, 
so that it now is no longer good, but it's actually unhelpful. We are so convinced that we know what is right that we are like that toddler having a temper tantrum saying, I know what is right and it's got to be this way because you have no idea what you're talking about. God, my creator, my heavenly father, that's us. So, for example, this is how it plays out in church. We make church all about us because I matter so much and I make it about me. And we make church more like the consumer experience of walking through the mall. You know what walking through the mall is like, right? Like there are hundreds of stores in the mall and you are walking through and you skip by all the things that are not what you want and you go right to the couple stores that are exactly what you want to pick out what you need for me, right? That's how we treat church. And I, I don't know whether it's the, the songs that we sing or whether it's the, the teaching or the, the length of time of the service or if it's the way the room looks or the things are put together or the budget lines of a particular church or the personalities that are a part of a church or personalities that are a part of the leadership or the programs that the church offers, or the programs that the church doesn't offer. But we look at it as though it's all about me and I'm going to walk through the mall and I should be able to get exactly what I want want and I'll just skip everything else that is not exactly what I want for me. And then when we don't get it exactly the way I want, we have an adult temper tantrum because I actually am the one who knows exactly what is best and the way it should go. And you need to listen to me. But God says to us here, do not think of yourselves more highly than you ought. See, the gospel calls us to a very different focus than me. The gospel transforms the way we think of ourselves and shifts our focus. The gospel actually says, you and I, we're broken. Yes, we are made absolutely precious in the image of God, but we are marred image bearers. Sin has poisoned us, all of us. Our hearts have been poisoned by sin. Our motives and motivations have been poisoned by sin. Our perspective is poisoned by sin. We are blind and we cannot see that we are blind. We are dead and we do not even realize that we are dead and think we are alive. We are sick and we don't even notice it. The problems in our lives and in our world and in our church are not because self hasn't been lifted up enough. The problem in our lives, our world, and in our church is that self has been lifted up too much. The focus has been put too squarely upon me, 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 me. We have been poisoned by pride. The gospel also declares not only are we broken and sinful, we can't fix ourselves. But that's why Jesus came. Jesus came to rescue us, to make us whole, to die in our place, to give us new life, to reconcile us to God, to give us a new beginning. He graciously lavished his love upon us and he is the one whom we are to focus on. He is the one whom we are to delight in. He is the one whom we glorify there's this pithy definition that I didn't come up with. I don't know where it came from. But humility is not thinking less of yourself. 
It's thinking of yourself less. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. The call of the gospel is not to some sort of like self-deprecation and woe is me, lowly thinking, insincere, and that's what humility is. No, humility is thinking of yourself less. It's focusing upon Jesus. It's our attention drawn towards Jesus, our gaze towards Jesus, our honor and glory and praise towards Jesus, all credit towards Jesus. Jesus, that's what humility is. I see myself rightly. He died on the cross for me. He rescued me. And so I give all my praise to him. The gospel transforms the way I think about myself. Our text continues with two realities that then come out of this incredible, beautiful, gospel-rooted humility. Here's the first one. Gospel-rooted humility says... I belong to you. The transformed life, not the conformed life, says, I belong to you. Verse 4, just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we who are many form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. So the picture of us according to this passage, is not the shopping mall. The picture of the church is not the shopping mall experience where you walk through, skip by everything that's not really for you with a focus all on me to the places where I want to go and get what I need. The picture of us, the church, is a body. One body. Notice it says we are one body. So is there, there is this sense amongst all of us who are part of this church. We are one united body together. There's connection. It also says with many members, which is giving us this, indi- this uh, indication of diversity and uniqueness. So many, although coming together as one, different, distinct. And also not all members have the same function, it says. We have different purposes that we're made for. We have different purposes that God has intentionally put into place. Ear, eye, hand, foot, on purpose. So, verse 5 says, in Christ, we who are many form one body and each member belongs to all the others. Gospel-rooted humility makes an audacious statement. It says, I belong to you. Gospel-rooted humility leads me to say, I belong to you. I belong to you because I am united with Jesus and so are you. I belong to you because I have the Holy Spirit living in me and so do you, brother or sister in Christ. I belong to you because God has made us one. He has made us a body. This is what laying on the altar, being transformed, not conformed, gospel-rooted humility declares. The California said to the Titanic, you think you're fine. Go do it your own way. We'll do our own thing. And the the results were catastrophic. 
We'll just go to bed early. They don't really need us. They must be having a party. They're unsinkable. Pride rises up and it makes the church break down. And I, I've been around long enough to know the stories. And I get it. I get this is not easy. This is an audacious statement to make. This can be downright hard sometimes because at times the body of Jesus is messy. At times the body of Jesus is confusing. At times the body of Jesus has frankly been hurtful. And it's left wounds. And it's left many to conclude, you know what, I don't need the body. I can just go it my own way. I'll just do this Christian thing myself. And so at one extreme, there are some who find themselves at the spot where you know what? I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna completely go it my own. It's me and Jesus. I'm at home and I don't need anything else. Me and Jesus, we can pray, we can talk, I can read my Bible, and I'm all good. I don't want anything to do with, you know, I, it, I would rather, I can have a greater worship experience out in my boat fishing than I can at church, because it's a whole lot easier than dealing with all those people and all the stuff that they do and think and the way they act, is how some would say. Some would act, some would carry themselves. Or maybe, maybe come back a little bit from that extreme, but there are some, maybe even many, who, who would say, you know what, I don't really need the church. I mean, I'm around the church, but I don't really belong to the church. I, I keep it at uh, arm's length. I am present, but I am not plugged in. I, I am around this whole thing, but, I, but I'm skeptical. I'm jaded. It's wounded me one too many times for me to lean in. I, I'm frustrated with the whole thing. I'm guarded and edgy. I, I might have to say I love you, but I really don't like you. The problem with the church is that the church is full of broken people like me, and you. When we rub up against the other people, we are rubbing up against people who are struggling to get on the altar. They keep jumping off as living sacrifices and they keep trying to get back on and jumping off and trying to get back on. And it rubs when you come alongside someone who's trying to fight to do that. We are walking alongside people who are bent to think, me, 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 me. And when we walk alongside someone who's thinking, me, 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 it gets frustrating at points and hurtful sometimes. We're dealing with individuals who have their minds saturated with the things of this world and are just being conformed and are fighting to wring out the sponge that is their mind and soak it in the truth of God's word. But there's this battle going on within them, trying, striving by the Holy Spirit to be transformed and we rub all together. And as that saying goes, hurt people hurt people. And sometimes it can appear easier to just stay at a distance from it all. 
I don't, I don't really need this whole church thing. I don't really need all of the drama of these people. I don't, I don't need these wounds. I don't need the rub. Isn't it easier just to go it my own way, to do it myself? But Jesus didn't die just for you, friend. Or just for me, friend. Jesus didn't die to make a gigantic army of solo soldiers. He died for the church. He died for us collectively together. He died to make us one body together. And the radical, transformed community that God is calling us to is one rooted in gospel humility that goes back right to Jesus who set this example. I mean, listen to Philippians chapter 2. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if you have any encouragement from His love, if you have any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded. Like-minded to Christ is what it's talking about. Having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourself. Each one of you should look not only to your own interest, but also to the interest of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Listen to how Jesus looked at the world, looked at us who being in the very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Pride says, I don't want to belong to the church. I want to do it myself. I might be around, but I'm going to be distant. I'm going to keep this at arm's length. But the radical, transformed church that God is wanting to build in our midst and invite us to, all that God would have for us is one of humility that says, I give myself to you. And you give yourself to me. I belong to you. If that seems impossibly hard or crazy to think of, then maybe the action step for you this week is to take that text in Philippians and just have that be your point of focus and memorization and meditation all week. Reflect on and let the love of Jesus and the example of Jesus just soak your mind and saturate your heart and see how Jesus led with such humility to show his love for you and his love for me. Third and finally here today, we see in these final three verses, gospel-rooted humility says, I will exercise my gifts. Verse six, we have different gifts according to the grace given us. If a man's gifts is prophesying, let him use it in proportion to his faith. If it is serving, let him serve. If it's teaching, let him teach. If it's encouraging, let him encourage. 
If it is contributing to the needs of others, let him give generously. If it's leadership, let him govern diligently. If it's showing mercy, let him do it cheerfully. If you are a follower of Jesus with us here today, or if you become a follower of Jesus, even at this very moment, the Holy Spirit has taken up residence or will take up residence in your life at the moment you give your life to him. And of the many things the Spirit of God does in the life of a believer, one of them is that he gives gifts to the believer. He gives spiritual gifts. Every single Christian has at least one spiritual gift given from the Holy Spirit. And we see this list of some of the gifts here. Prophecy, serving, teaching, encouraging, contributing, leadership, and mercy. In other spots in the Bible, we see some of the other gifts that are listed. Some of the, the texts for those, if you want to dig into them. Um, Romans chapter 12 here, verses 6 to 8. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 8 to 10. As well as chapter 12, verse 28 to 30. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 10 and 11. Now, as a church here, we really do believe that all of the spiritual gifts that God has given and writes about in the New Testament, he still gives to his church today. He still sovereignly chooses and gives to his children today for the building up of the church and the service of the Lord. These are not from a bygone era that were once and are no longer. These are still given to brothers and sisters, followers of Jesus today. And we've used the language in the past, if you've been around with us for a few years, of, of three different categories of gifts. If you go through and run at all these different gifts from the different lists, there are some that are love gifts. What that means is they, they show practically, as you display this gift, they show the practical love of God to other people. These would be things like mercy, things like giving, things like compassion or helps. So there are love gifts. There are also word gifts. These are, are gifts that, that are word-driven where you speak the truth of God in his word. You explain who God is, what he's like, and how he shows himself in his word. These would be things like teaching or shepherding or leadership or evangelism. And then there's, so there's love gifts, word gifts, and power gifts. Power gifts, these would be gifts where it's like, whoa, God is in the room. Something just happened here, and it's only God as the explanation to this. These would be gifts like faith and healing and tongues and words of knowledge. There's no other explanation that God just moved in this moment. Now, I could say a ton about spiritual gifts. I actually, we did a 13-week series on spiritual gifts a couple years ago. If you want, you can go and pop onto the church website and search that. But today I want to just zero in on one thing that really jumps out in this particular text talking about spiritual gifts. It is emphatic in this text. Gospel-rooted humility says, I will exercise my spiritual gifts. See, a healthy and thriving church exercises all of the gifts God has given to it. Pride says, well... We don't really need that gift. 
Pride says, you know what? I, I don't know what's wrong with that. There's no way I looked, and it actually looks down on certain kinds of gifts and certain kinds of people who are using certain kinds of gifts. No, not here. That's not how we do it. As if we know better than God, the giver of the gifts on how he's supposed to run his church. Pride says, also, well, I'm not good enough because of the gifts. Pride, pride puts together this list of this hierarchy of gifts. Well, these gifts are really special and, and prominent and, and really the most important gifts, and these are the most spiritual gifts. And so sometimes it can be where like, well, I've got one of the higher gifts and look at all of you down there who don't really have this gift. Or sometimes it can pride can actually manifest itself in being like, well, I'm nothing because I only have this little gift and they've got all of that gift over there and it looks down on me, which is actually pride too. And both of these are distortions of what God says here for us about the spiritual gifts. What God says here is that God has given each of us a gift. They're from God. What God says here is we are made in one body, many parts, but one body. All of the parts of the body are vital and need to exercise their gifts. This is really his central point, is it not here? He says, if you have gifts of prophecy, then prophesy. If it's serving, then serve. If it's teaching, then teach. If it's encouraging, then get out there, exhort, encourage, comfort people. If it's giving, you need to give your socks off. If it's leading, then step up and lead. If it's mercy, then cheerfully care for the needs of others. See, at this point, some begin to break out in cold sweats, depending upon your background of church, because you have seen some supposed gifts really encouraged and used in all kinds of weird and wacky, swinging from the chandeliers kind of ways. Or you are aware of how the devil can counterfeit some gifts and create real damage. The Bible's answer to this, though, is actually really quite simple. I mean, there's a lot of work behind it, but it's very straightforward. Do you know what the Bible says to all of that? It says this, 1 Thessalonians, Do not put out the Spirit's fire. Do not treat prophecies with contempt. Test everything. Hold on to the good. Avoid every kind of evil. See, many traditions have said because of the weird and wacky and misuse and inappropriate, let's just get rid of all of this. But that's not what the Bible says. What the Bible calls us to when it comes to the spiritual gifts is to fall in line with the scriptures and to do the hard work of discernment to say, is this really from the Holy Spirit? The Bible doesn't say, just get rid of all of the gifts. It actually says, do not put out the Spirit's fire. Test everything. We must have careful, rigorous, biblical discernment so that we do not veer off from this book. But then hear this. Quenching the Spirit's fire is just as much of veering off of this book as misusing the gifts. God calls us to be a church that exercises every single gift that God has given to us. 
The spiritual gifts are like muscles and they need to be exercised. They need to be used just like a physical muscle. We grow and strengthen our spiritual gifts as we use them, brothers and sisters, in the context of a safe, godly community exercising discernment according to the Holy Scriptures. And so if this is your church, if Bethel is your church, then hear this. You have been given a specific spiritual gift. The Holy Spirit has given you your gift or gifts for a reason. God has placed you here for a reason. No matter how young or old you are, no matter what stage of life you are at, God has you, dear brother, dear sister, with the particular spiritual gifts you have for a reason as part of this church, and he is calling you to exercise your spiritual gifts. We need you to exercise your spiritual gifts because the body doesn't have any extra appendages that are not really necessary. The body doesn't have, you know, like limp limbs that just like hang off the body and don't really matter and just hang there. Every single part of the body is vital. Every single part of the body is needed. Every single part of the body needs to be doing what God has made it to do. We often say as a church, we are here, we exist to bring glory to God by making disciples who make disciples. Friends, this is at the heart of it. You and I, each using our spiritual gifts, is how we live out being disciple, making disciples to the glory of God. As some do practical acts of service in clothesline, it draws people to see the love of God in action as they get food and clothing. As some use their gifts of prayer on our prayer teams, God uses it mightily to soften hearts and draw men and women to see the Lord and to see Him move in their lives. As some people use the gift of hospitality, it, it makes the very first experience of walking in the door on a Sunday morning when the doors get open and a welcome from a smiling, loving face just softens and prepares the way for them to worship Jesus and hear from His Word. As some use their gifts of giving, it does all kinds of things to reach out to the very nations as well as to plant churches in places like Glencoe, as some use their gifts of words of knowledge, it, it is used powerfully even in recent days through our Alpha ministry to draw people out to see Jesus and God is really alive. How did he know that? How did he do that? As some use their gifts of teaching in Bethel Kids, young children are having the chance to hear and learn about the God of the universe, the God of the Bible, and what it means to follow him. As some use their gifts of encouragement, broken marriages are being mended in our midst, and I could go on and on and on. And none of these gifts are in competition with one another, saying one is better or worse than another. None of these gifts are looking down on one another. All of these gifts and many others are needed to be who God is calling us as a church to be and what God has on purpose in mind for your life and for my life. We are working together as one unified body and we need one another to exercise our spiritual gifts. This is the transformational, beautiful, 
extraordinary humility that God produces as he's at work in our lives and in our midst.